0: When I was 12 years old, I met my dad for the first time, um, my biological father, and I remember pacing, you know, back and forth in the lobby of a Red Robin. Gosh, I was so anxious. I kept wanting to be chill, you know. I kept like sitting down on like this bench and like you know as a 12 year old, like trying to put my arm up on something and and trying to act relaxed, you know? Like, I don't know, he was gonna walk in, I was gonna be like, what's up, Pops? You know, (laughs) or something. Uh, Oh man, but I was freaked out. And and this'll be pretty obvious for y'all, I think, but the thought that kept coming up over and over and over again is, what if he doesn't like me? And I I I wish I could hug that little kid Interestingly, I don't, I, don't, I don't think I would tell him he's going to love you. I think I would tell him he's an idiot if he doesn't love you. <laughs> I think that's what I'd tell him. Uh, but, man, I, I think I was freaked out. And, and here's the thing. I, I think I was freaked out because I had some evidence, you know. It wasn't just like a, it wasn't a totally irrational fear. It was, it was um, anchored in some stuff. Like, I I had done some things as a kid that weren't great. And I, I guess I probably wondered how much that mattered for the love of the my father. Um, like, I'd stolen a bunch of stuff, you know, gotten in some fights, lied, you know, those kinds of things as a kid. I was a pretty good kid. But still, I'm about to meet my dad for the first time. I was freaking out, you know. I think by far the bigger narrative is so many men had come and gone in my life. And somewhere... I began to internalize that like, what if I am a common denominator in all of the reasons why they left? What if, what if like intrinsically there's something not good about me? And so no matter how much I tried to like console myself and be like, "He's, you know, this is going to be great, it's going to be cool, whatever, I think mostly I was terrified (laughs) because I thought what if he sees me and he's like not pleased, you know? and it it went great. It was weird. I mean, he looked like me, or I looked like him, and we had some similar mannerisms, and we never met, so that kind of wigged me out. And 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 Red Robin has bottomless fries, which was pretty cool, you know. So I mean, I, it was a good night. And uh, but I'm 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 thinking today, as we're about to open up our, our the scripture for tonight, about how many of us feel those kinds of things about God, about meeting God. Forget for a minute that God has, I don't want you to forget this, but set aside for a minute that God has already turned his face toward us. I think many of us live as if he hasn't yet and that our life is one big test. And we're going to find out after we die if we passed. And we already think we, you know, it's like coming up before a final and we've got like a D in the class and we know if we get like a, a 99 point something on the final, then we can maybe get a C, but what, there's no way that's gonna happen, you know? Like I feel like, I don't know if we live that way or something, but like I think many of us do. We live in this like, f- this frame of mind that all of this is some kind of test and when we show up before God, we're already pretty sure that we're not gonna get a very good grade. And He's not gonna like us, you know? Maybe for you, it's not because you don't think you're good enough. Maybe it is. But I think for many of us, it's because of some past decisions we've made. You know, some, some, um, uh, some things we've done which bring an enormous amount of shame into our life or patterns of life that, that we know God may not like. Or, or maybe it's actually plans that we still have for the future or ways we've set our mind that we know are contrary to God. And, well, he's going to see right through that, man. And I don't know if I can change this. And so when he comes into the lobby of Red Robin, he's going to be like, I think I want another kid, you know. We're talking about faith tonight, and um, it's a a super important concept, an idea, in light of this dynamic. Because as we'll see tonight in the passage, we're saved um, through faith, And if I can flex a little bit of the analogy, I wonder how many of us think our faith isn't enough or it's not good enough, it's not strong enough, or we don't have it. And how many of us are, are either trying to live lives so that we can get it or so that it can be stronger or we think we've somehow missed the boat. Anyway, we're looking at Ephesians chapter two tonight and I hope that we hear God Say, I've already dec- I've already decided that I love you and that I'm pleased with you. Friends, tonight I want you to hear from the text that faith is something God gives freely because He loves us. And that none of us have to wonder what He thinks about us. None of us do. None of us have to wonder at all what God thinks about us. He's already made that known. Even though the course of this world, the work of Satan, and the very things which exist in our own heart and mind try to convince us otherwise, God has already declared His love for you and for me in Jesus Christ already. Let's let's, let's pray and let's discover that from the text, all right? Um, Father, would you send your spirit right now that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts and mind, would be pleasing to you? And would you do all of that because we're pleasing to you? By your grace and through faith in Jesus, we ask for this in his name. Amen. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. I might stop as we go through this to highlight some things, okay? Okay. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of of mankind. Let me stop right there just for a minute. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I'm not going to get too much into the context here. Paul's talking about Gentiles and Jews and he's actually doing this pretty magisterial work with his pronouns. He's sweeping everybody together. He will say after the passage tonight that we're reading a little bit later in Ephesians, he'll talk about how Jesus is the, um, excuse me, is the peace that brings people together. He's the thing that tears down the dividing wall between us and he's made a new humanity. He actually talks about the church as a new creation, like Genesis, like a brand new creation. It's this new creation where God is gonna be worshiped and we're gonna dwell with him together in this temple and there's this garden and now there's new work to be done. It's be- it's absolutely beautiful language. That's some context for you, okay? But. But Paul moves in three verses to talking about the rest of humanity. And so I just, I want you to see that he sweeps all of the people in the world and in history together under this category and says that there are things which which make us dead. These sins, these trespasses. And you know how they come about? They come about through the patterns of the world, they come about because of the force of Satan and his work, in a rival kingdom to God, and they come about because we just chase after the, the natural desires in a fallen world. These these desires and thoughts that we have, we just follow them without examination, you know. And and I want us, I want us to see these things because um, I don't want to labor too long here. But I think some of us aren't fighting a comp a complex enough battle. That we're we're sort of um, You know, we have one arm tied behind our back because we're unaware. Maybe maybe you think, maybe you're looking out at the world. I can actually think of like different kind of uh, subcultures within the church that kind of have one angle on this. Like maybe you look out at the world and you go like, oh, I can see some of the evil in the world, some of the way the world wants us to be, the fads and the fashions and the trends which run contrary to God's kingdom. Friends, there are patterns of this world that are contrary to God's kingdom. And we, we must resist them and fight them. When we don't, these things produce in us death that's worthy of the wrath of God, Paul says. I think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, be transformed in your mind. Let your mind be renewed by God and do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. There the The world, like the culture that we live in is not a, it's not like a neutral site. It's not friendly to everybody who plays. There's agendas and directions and norms which exist in the world which run contrary to the kingdom of God. But that's not it. There are also forces at work within the kingdom of Satan vying for our our, our souls, And that's like a whole other talk (laughs) that looks like. Some of you probably have a lot of history of teaching in that. Many of us don't, okay? Let me just suggest two things. Satan does two things a lot. There are two things you should keep an eye out for in the work of Satan, okay? The first is this. As an individual, he tries to convince you that God doesn't, in fact, love you. He lies. He steals. He destroys. He accuses in order to convince you that God does not, in fact, love you. And where you hear those narratives that God surely doesn't love you, and it almost always sounds like that. It's almost never he doesn't love you. It's almost always a question or a suggestion. How could he possibly love someone like you? Surely he doesn't. That is Satan, friends. That is Satan, and we need to fight like the dickens against him, okay? I don't know what that phrase means, but... It sounded good. Um, The second thing he does in our communities is he causes division, okay? So Satan is at work to convince us that God doesn't in fact love us and to divide the church. So the world has norms and patterns which run contrary to God's kingdom. Satan is at work to convince us that God doesn't love us and to divide us. And then Paul says in verse three that our desires and our thoughts often run contrary to God. And when we just give into them, these three things together produce in us a kind of death that is worthy of the wrath of God. Now, I know we live in a culture, and at a time for many of us, that we don't like to talk about wrath. We like to say things like, you do you. We like to affirm anything and everything as if everything's okay. We know it's not. I mean, like, we're kind of, um, you know, I don't know, like, we're, we, we're contradictory in this. Because on one hand, if you even look at like this election, last election cycle, we seem to have no problem calling some people evil and calling some things evil. We just disagree on what it is. But at the same time, within our camps, we, we really like to just affirm everybody and not say anything bad about anybody. And I'm convinced that some of the reason why is because we think that God's going to walk into the Red Robin dining room at, at lobby at any moment. And we're all freaked out about it. And we're trying to encourage each other with, like, you know, positivity and and fluff that isn't always rooted in truth. What if, friends, there really are things in our life, in our history, and in this world that are worthy of the wrath of God? We can think of extremes. Surely we would desire that God has wrath against anything which is trafficking humans in this world. Surely we desire God to um, unpack, (laughs) unfold, execute justice and, 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 and His wrath against atrocities which are committed to children. Surely, right? The trick is when we begin to start naming those things, we begin to wonder how much this line of good and evil cuts through every one of our hearts. And if God is wrathful, if He does execute justice... What does that mean about the things in my life which are worthy of wrath? This is a heavy section in in Ephesians. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And we all, because of following after the patterns of this world, uh, participating in the work of Satan and his kingdom and believing his lies, or chasing after our own desires and thoughts which run contrary to God's kingdom, because of those things... We have become by nature children of wrath. That's heavy, but it's true. But God. Verse 4, but God. A friend of mine, and I'm sure these are popular somewhere. I've only seen one of these, but a friend of mine had a journal once. And on the cover of her journal, she had two words, but God. God. And I asked her what that meant, and she highlighted this verse. And we talked for a while about this, this, um, this amazing comma in Scripture. <laughs> that when, when Paul says that we were by nature children of wrath, you know, in, in verse 3, like the rest of humankind, we want to put a period there and think that's it and feel ashamed and hide or run. But God... This great comma in history and in the text. But God, man, those are two rich words that we skip right over. There's a turn here, friends, that I don't want you to miss. That there's something before this turn which is true. And it's to our detriment and to our immaturity and to everything else if we, dis- if we ignore this. It's also to our detriment if we don't keep going. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul interrupts his own thought because he just has to shout this out. Even in the writing, you can feel it, right? He says, you know, but God, um, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, what a marvelous couple of verses, friends. By grace, you've been saved. I want you to see a couple things here. Okay. Though we, in all of our humanity, like all all the rest of mankind, were by nature children of wrath because of the ways in which we participated in the patterns of this world and the work of Satan and the very things within us that are at work, contrary to God, We were dead in our trespasses, but God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. I want you to see that God did this while we were already dead. Because some of us, and I don't know if anybody's been taught this explicitly, but I think many of us who follow Jesus are convinced that God loves us after we confess our sins. That he loves us after we make a profession of faith that that he has enemies but if you if you believe in Jesus first confess your sins get baptized come to church stop having sex before marriage stop getting drunk all the time stop stealing cheating lying whatever it is whatever it is you think i mean whatever our little sins are that we 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 tend to focus on in this arena how many of us are convinced that if you take the first step then god will pour out his love upon you but until you do, he's just pissed. He didn't like you, you're his enemy, or fill in the blank. That's not the gospel, friends. That's not the good news that we find about ourselves and God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The good news is that while we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with him in Jesus Christ. While we were still dead. the There's a prophet ezekiel who pictures god um living this way and acting this way with his people um and it's it's a intense image i think it's from ezekiel 17 or 16 you can look it up um but the the image the image that he brings up is that israel is like a a a stillborn baby wallowing in blood never mind that, that that doesn't work exactly but but this is the image and it's a it's a horrific graphic image, right? That there's this stillborn baby that's wallowing around in its blood and it's it's dead. And Ezekiel, uh, God through Ezekiel, tells Israel to 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 know that this is what she is like. That he he comes up to her while she's dead in that blood, and he breathes upon her, and he says, "Live," because he loves her. And then it says, and then she as she grew up, he adorned her, and he. Uh, with with jewelry and with beauty and he raised her to know about her love and her dignity and her worth and it's this beautiful story of god picture of god coming upon his people while they were dead not after they've you know repented of their sins and chosen him he chose her first he goes first he loves first and, he ra- and this image is so good. He raises her up. He makes her beautiful. He loves her. He gives her dignity. And then it says that she plays the whore and she whores herself out. The image is so dramatic. If you read it, you're going to be shocked at the kinds of things that are in the Bible, okay, that the story doesn't even end there. Not only was she dead and did God love her, but then she squandered everything that he gave her. But then God says, if you keep going, that he's going to allure her and win her back. Friends, if you're dead you're in the trespasses and sins in which you're walking, God loves you first. He loves you right there at the bottom of where you are. And if you have squandered all the stuff that God has given you, if you've mailed it in, if you've hoarded yourself out in one way, shape, or form, God still loves you and wants to allure you and win you back. By grace, you've been saved. By grace, you've been saved. Grace is a free gift. That's what it means. I don't call my paycheck a a gracious thing. I think I've earned it. Sometimes I don't earn it. You know what I mean? But like, (laughs) work with me, okay? But like, you don't call that grace. Grace is when something is given freely as a gift. By grace, you've been saved. Not because you confessed your sins. Not because you felt really, really, really bad and you mean it this time. While you are dead in your trespasses, or maybe you're dead in them now, God makes you alive together with Him in Jesus Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And it's so much more than that. Not only has He declared His love for you and saved you in Jesus Christ, but, and none of us actually even go this far with our hopes. We haven't talked about hope for a couple more weeks, but... We're cheating and looking ahead. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you, if you can imagine me wondering if my dad will like me as an analogy, Paul here is saying, not only does God love you, there is a seat waiting for you at his table. That's not even enough. He wants you to know that you actually in a way are already seated there. And in other passages of scripture, he would say, our citizenship is in heaven. You do not have to wonder if you have a seat at the table. You don't have to wonder if you're getting scraps from God's table. You have a seat of honor at His table in the new kingdom. Signed, sealed, delivered in Jesus. We can hear the words that He said to His apostles. He's going to prepare a place for you. And if He's preparing a place for you, He's going to come back and get you and bring you there. It is certain and it's by grace so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, he has to say it again. He has to say it again because we don't believe it. It's so shocking. It's so stunning. The world works in in a million ways against this. Satan loves it when we doubt this. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And just in case you still don't get it. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. One more thing. I'm going to pause on this real quick, okay? Faith is a gift of God. It's not something that you you go work on. It's not something you go into your room and drum up. When somebody even says to you, you need more faith, that might be true. The appropriate response to that is, well, let me ask God for it then. Because faith is a gift. So if you don't have faith, friends I'm just I'm worried about the shame that you might feel because you don't think your faith is strong enough or you don't have it. It is a gift of God. If you don't have faith and you want it, if your brothers or sisters or girlfriends or boyfriends or parents or roommates or enemies don't have faith, do not send them, out to try to work on it. When you don't have faith, you know what you need to do is read the Bible more. You don't have faith, you know what you need to do? You need to like, I don't know, get up every morning to do quiet times. Maybe those things are helpful for a variety of reasons. But faith is a gift from God. So if I want you to have faith, I'm gonna pray and say, Lord, would you please give them faith? Actually, right now, Lord Jesus, everybody who's listening to this, and for me, would you give us the faith that we need, please? Satan tries to convince us that we need to go out and get it. That we're saved by grace through faith. And somehow we interpret that to meaning like, golly, like if I want to be saved, i got to have more faith. Lord, help us, please. Give us faith. If it's a gift, Lord, then all we can do is open our hands to receive it. Um, you, You must give it. Please give it. Amen. Friends, faith is a gift. If you you remember one thing from this, please remember that faith is a gift from God. It's not of your own doing. It's not a result of works, Paul says, so that no one can boast. No one should ever say, well, I have faith, why don't you? Or I've got stronger faith, why don't you? It's a gift. No one should boast about this. And then this is lovely. Here's how he wraps it up. For we are his workmanship. Do you know friends that as you have been made alive with Jesus knitted knit together in the body of Christ that you are a new creation you are God's peculiar treasure his workmanship He actually designed you created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them Okay this is the order I want you to pay attention to works matter Good works matter, but the order is really important. You don't need to live a certain way for God to love you so that you can receive the promises in the coming kingdom. Nope. God has decided to love you even though you haven't lived in a way that is in alignment with his kingdom. He's already decided that he loves you. He makes you alive together with him, promise, puts you gives a seat to you in his table in the coming kingdom, promises that in the coming kingdom immeasurable riches he will pour out upon you, and in light of all of that, he now says, "Now go and do good works in response to the love that I have for you in Jesus Christ." There's a little bit of an interlude in Ephesians three, but then he picks up this thought in Ephesians four. And he says, therefore walk in a worthy of the, uh, of the calling that you've been given, you know, live out your life in such a way that is commensurate with this truth. If you are a, a son or a daughter of the God most high, with a seat at the high table in the kingdom that's coming, with immeasurable riches that are waiting to be poured out upon you, and, the, and, and your worth and dignity and value have already been declared by God now. And the patterns of this world and the work of Satan and the ways in which the things inside us have worked against God's kingdom have been definitively shown as not able to withstand the love of God. He conquers that. He wins out over that. His love is stronger than death and sin and evil. If that's true, he's setting us, he, 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 what does it mean for him to set us up that way in the world? I said earlier, I wish I could have hugged that kid when he was 12. And I, and I wouldn't have told him, um, your dad's going to love you. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have told him that. I mean, now I wouldn't have told him that. What I would have told him is, God loves you. And if this guy doesn't love you, he's an idiot. (laughs) That's what I would have said. I don't know if he would have believed it. Friends, I I had this uh, breakthrough moment um, in my life and in my faith, um, and it was a gift. (laughs) Um, When I had my firstborn child, um, I was already a pastor. I mean, I'd already been working in ministry at you know, whatever. Theology, I had a bunch of thoughts about God and whatever. Um, I remember holding my firstborn child in my arms and realizing I love him and it has nothing to do with the way he's lived his life or how he'll live his life. I mean, like up to that point, he'd made you know my wife very uncomfortable. Um, he'd cost us a lot of money uh, he, he'd made some dynamics between us, tough. Um, he was nasty looking, you know, when he came out all kind of misshapen and covered in bodily fluids and making weird noises that were gross. And, um, like, like he hadn't done like a thing. You know, and anything he had done wasn't even his own choice, but, but I, it was so clear to me that I, I love him and there's nothing he could do to change it, ever. He could hate me. He could be apathetic. He could live in ways that are contrary to everything I desire. I would love him still. And something broke in me. And I realized, oh my God, if I could love my son this way, is it possible that it's true? Is it possible that the rumor that the church has been spreading for 2,000 years is true? Could God love me like this too? Is it possible That there's nothing I could do that would separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, my Lord? And I guess I want to submit that to you, friends. If it's possible for a dad like me (laughs) to love his kids, and it has nothing to do with what they do, just because of who they are. And sometimes they live contrary to who they are. You know, I love them still. And I don't need them to act in a certain way so that I'll love them and accept them. If that's possible for me, how much more is it possible for God, who designed each and every one of us? This is the good news, friends that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord and what he says is true, then faith is a gift. And he loved us while we're still sinners. And he loved us first. And there's no way in which you followed the patterns of this world. There's no way in which you bought into the lies of Satan. There's no way in which you have chased after your own desires and thoughts in ways that are contrary to God's kingdom that could keep you from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ. Maybe your roommates don't like you. Maybe your parents have a hard time with you. Maybe you've had your heart broken by somebody. Maybe you don't love yourself. But God loves you. And the rest of us are all idiots if we don't too. We've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, friends. And it's not of our own doing. It is a free gift of God because he loved us even while we were still sinners.